welcome to episode three of the School of High Tide podcast series supported by Nick Han Books. My name is Naomi Shonea Thomas and I'm an emerging writer, producer and host of this podcast alongside Shuba Daz, the artistic director of High Tide and Chris Sonics, an associate artist at High Tide and also the curator of this program. This week we spoke to Ned Glazier, who is the artistic director and founder of Company 3 a youth theatre organisation in Islington that works with young people aged 11 to 19. Their previous work includes a coronavirus time capsule, which captured the thoughts and feelings, ideas and stories of lots of young people during the coronavirus pandemic, and it was all done digitally. We also performed at venues such as the National Theatre, Battersea Arts Centre and the platform Islington. I'm super excited to have Ned with us on the programme today to bring his ideas, his expertise, his thoughts about working in community and youth theatre, including how theatre can honour its civic duty to its community. And for any emerging writers out there, how community and youth theatre can be a great way to write scripts for bigger casts than you may be used to or you may be normally allowed to. Um, with lots of resources in iconic venues with a very supportive audience. And it also gave me a few moments to reflect on my process as a writer, which actually is quite important to recognise if you want to bring people into that process. If you can't explain how you do it, how can you truly, truly allow people to be part of it? Hopefully by the end of this episode, anyone who's thinking of working in community theatre with young people will just feel that little bit more tooled up and ready to go out and engage their community in their art. I think that young people are are not listened to in society. And it's interesting because young people also very rarely get the chance to be a kind of an artist. They rarely get a, a commission, do they? Or they rarely get a, um, a directing gig or, a, or whatever. Um, and, and, and I'm not saying necessarily that, that we should give all the 14-year-olds... Uh, <laughs> you know full play writing commissions you know what I mean like yeah. what I am saying is that that theatre can be a medium through which they might speak and I think a really crucial role of the artists who work in in theatre is to, is to listen really well to young people uh or to to people who aren't necessarily theatre professionals um and to and to create a space in which they can be heard um uh and that they might speak out Mm. when um well as you're mainly based in Islington mm. I imagine you have like a, a wide mix of uh, young people from lots of different backgrounds how do you sort of cater for lots of different needs and do you ever get young people bring in a topic that you just think oh, how are we going to safely handle that I guess it's I think it's a bit more complex than that in that we don't generally what we never say and I think one of the the most uh the, like the least useful questions you can ever ask a group of people is the question, what do you want to make a play about? Mm. Um, because in some ways I think that's the question that always gives you the answer. That's like the thing they think you want them to say rather than the thing they really feel. So a lot of the time, the questions we're asking are like, what's going on for you or what's in your head right now? Or what do you, what are you really obsessed with? Do you know what I mean? Like what are you really into right now? Um, um, and also just allowing space for conversation um that isn't kind of bordered or boundaried by um by a workshop leader you know um so it's about really um enjoying those you know like the little weird things or the breaks or the the trips or the whatever else and the things that come out in those conversations and then it's about like 
working with a group to kind of work out what feels most important. And of course, some really difficult stuff comes up um, and some challenging stuff. And I think there's there's a whole load of things we do as an organisation to keep people safe in that. And sometimes that's about going, no, like one of the things that we do as an organisation, as a company, is that we work really long term with young people. And in the last few years, because I think some of the younger ones in the group have kind of seen the older ones do work that 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 really um, that exposes something of themselves, you know, that, that really expresses something important to them. Sometimes the youngest ones have kind of come to us and effectively kind of said, please, can I like rip my heart out on stage and like <laughs> cry about this very difficult thing? Um, and um and, and sometimes it's okay to say no. Do you know what I mean? Like, because I, we don't know you well enough or we don't know your family and we don't know what it's going to mean because it's fine to to maybe express something in a rehearsal room, but then to put it on stage when you've never been on stage before. Like, I think w- something I've learned in my time is to be really cautious, really cautious, because the safety of the people that we work with feels most important. Mm. It's interesting that you say about not going in saying we want to make what do you want to make a play about mm. um high rise did a, a workshop as part of this um school of high tide yeah uh thing and um they mentioned that if they go into a hostel or a pru yeah or somewhere where people automatically uh look at you with side eye is what they said mm-hmm. and you're going in there and you're saying i'm a writer and i want to make a difference to your life or something that seems so worthy or patronizing mm. Um, you're not going to connect with that community group or that uh, young person yeah. or whoever it is. I was just wondering, like you've spoken about it a bit already, but just how you how you sort of talk their language and find that common that commonality between you. Because um, there's, a, I also think sometimes people only go into a community space because they need to tick a box on a arts council form, and they're like, yeah, we're going to do these workshops, but really yeah. we want to do the play. <laughs> like the the workshop is a side thing. Um, And and it's kind of based on this idea that I have something to teach you rather than the other way around. I think right at the heart of all of our work is this this idea of care and love and respect and um, seeing all of the young people we are that we work with as as young artists in, in and of their own right. And also, I think something that happens to teenagers a lot is like they never get met for their own age. They always get met as someone that you can turn into something. Um, so I like a few years ago, I spoke to this, it's always stuck with me, this 15 year old girl. And I just, I was working with her in a school that we were doing some work in. And I said, what's it like being 15? And she said, I have no idea what it means to be 15. Like, I don't know what that's like, because everyone's always telling me to be 18, like to get ready to think about my exams, to think about my future. I think a really big principle in our work is like, that we'll meet you for who you are right now, rather than trying to turn you into something. And that's both because who you are right now is really great. <laughs> Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like your 13 year old self is full of really interesting stuff. And like, you will never be that age again and you will never have those views and you'll never have the brain that you have now. Um, but also because it's not my job to turn anyone into anything. It's my job just to come in and listen and, and facilitate and make space where people can express who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool because yeah, it is. I feel like we don't enjoy the the now enough it's always like I'm on a journey this end point that I'm trying to get to and teenagers most of all right like I don't know there's no other decade in anyone's life where you are actively being hurried into your next decade like I don't know how old you are Naomi but like 
you know, if you're in your 20s or your 30s, you don't sit there. I mean, there are a few people who do, but like you don't sit there going, I cannot wait to be 30. Do you know what I mean? Or I cannot wait to be 40. Um, and even when like little kids, like I've got a three-year-old, I like desperately want to keep him three for as long as I possibly can. And then I'm going to really enjoy when he's four. Do you know what I mean? But like, mm. but in teenage years, we're so scared of teenagers, I think, and we don't really know what to do with them. And they threaten us because they're growing into adults and we don't quite know how to deal with that, that we're always desperately like pushing them into adulthood you can see it in how we're dealing with the pandemic right now right like like we've got to get the education into them got to make sure they get to university rather than making sure they're okay now yeah okay i've got one last question before i hand over to shuba um my question is maybe too vague but we'll see how it goes <laughs> i'm just wondering um if you brought a playwright to come and work with you who's not worked with young people before or in community settings before, what are some of the things that make them the best they can be in that job? What are some of the tips and uh, approaches that they can bring to that room, to that rehearsal room? I guess, first of all, know that it's like the most valid and important theatre work you can do, in my opinion, like, and and treat it like that. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Uh, understand that working with uh groups of people and co-creating work with groups of people is a craft in of its own right like um listen 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 like and listen in all the ways like listen to the things that aren't said listen to the body language listen to the things that are like slipped out on the way home <laughs> or mm. like in a text message or like at the end of a session or in a break um and and I think also, like, this is a big, like, something that I've really thought about over the last four or five years in my own practice is never pretend that you're not there. Um, I think there's a tendency in, like, a lot of youth and community work for an artist to pretend they're not there um, and to say things like, it's all their own work, it's all their own work. But I know, and we all know, that just by being in a room, I change the dynamic of a room. Like, I know that, whatever room I'm in. Um, and that might be... For, for all sorts of reasons but if someone is in the room they are part of that room and I think accepting that is a really empowering thing for any artist to do so I do you know I never say about any work that I make with a group of young people that it's their work I say it's their and my work and it could only be created by the by the combination of me and them um, and I think that's much more honest and, and potentially much much less dangerous than pretending that if you hadn't been in the room that's what all the people in that room would have said does that make any sense yeah it does actually I think you do see that sometimes people come in and they just just ignore me I've just got my notepad and I'm going to be yeah, making notes you're sitting in the <laughs> yeah. corner yeah sitting in the corner and like <laughs> do you know what I mean like whoever you are and whatever identities you bring into the room they're going to impact the way people talk and that's mm. just a part of it right um and of course that also means you should be and this I think is as an answer to your earlier question as well like that means you need to be super aware of what you're bringing into the room and what what that will enable and what that will um suppress in terms of conversation and um uh and, and part of my job as the leader of our organization is making sure that sometimes i'm not in the room uh, and sometimes other you know other people are in the room um and listening to what the young people need in terms of the artists that they work with so for me it's always led by what the young people are needing in that room rather than for example, who I want to work with. Mm. Okay, nice. I'm going to um, bring in Shuba to talk about your previous work. So Shuba, over to you. 
Hello, here I am. My microphone is on. I am in full Britney Spears mode. As we're saying to all of the amazing guests we have on this series, um, you are all artists who profoundly inspire us. Um, and I suppose for us at High Tide, just reflecting on the coronavirus time capsule project um, that you guys initiated mm. so extraordinarily and rapidly in the first lockdown, in which we were really proud to be part of at High Tide, um, creating sort of digital youth theatre in the east of England, working with some young people who may otherwise not have had access to any kind of cultural provision through that first lockdown period. And it was astonishing, right? How was it for you? Yeah, it was it was really tiring <laughs> um, and also really joyful and, and brilliant and it like what was what was really beautiful about it for us was that it it did something that we wanted to do as an organization for a long time which is to think about the role of youth theater as kind of a civic space where young people could mm. genuinely express themselves and make change and be heard and uh, and interpret the world and and to do that not just in little pockets of disconnected companies and groups but to do that as kind of a big mass of a big mass of mm. organizations because we have this amazing youth it is huge we must be turning over millions and millions and millions and no one ever talks about that part of the industry as a part of the industry you know it's like a sub part um mm. and so this idea of this power of all these young people linked up in multiple little mini citizens assemblies expressing themselves and changing the world feels really exciting to me I'm going to say something crass, vulgar and mercenary, because um, I, I love Please being tautologist as well, uh, which is just on that, which is, um, so the incredible Nick Hearn books, who are supporting us in creating this podcast series, um, Matt Applewhite, the director there, is telling me about, you know, the, their turnover in terms of things like amateur rights. Mm. And actually, for many of my playwright friends, um, getting checks in from youth theatres is a yeah. massive, massive part of their income. And it's a really underexplored territory because actually there are writers out there who are creating extraordinary texts, perhaps in, in a more traditional sense, some of, the, some of the ways of working we were talking about earlier. Um, but there is an income stream there, which I think is really important for... But also an opportunity, right? Exactly, like, yeah. Like, the, the things you can do in youth theatre as a writer, which you can't do <laughs> for the first, like, scale. 20 years of your life. Yeah. Like, you can write, like, massive plays with, like, like hundreds of people in it. And you can, like, really push the, imagina the imagination. You can really, like, you, you get to work in a kind of sector where... I don't know, for a long time, Shuba, like, I was really, really desperate to be validated by theatre world. And mm. um, and then, and then, like, I, I realised, actually, I, I, re I made a play and it didn't go very well and I felt really sad about it. And so I asked uh, the director, Lou Kemp, to come and, like, just interview the people who'd been involved in the play and, like, um, and help us understand what wasn't quite right with it. Like, I was really mm. sad while I was making it. And, like... And she and, and she wrote this beautiful report back to us. And at the end of it, or, or during that process, she said something to me, which has always really stuck with me. It's like, the thing you need to understand, Ed, is like, you have what everyone goes into theatre for, <laughs> which is like the kind of idea of make of transformative work and a long-term association with a group of artists. And like, you know, you're not in a four-week process where you're desperately trying to get something on stage and then you're being judged by the theatre world and that defines you. 
your next job, et cetera, et cetera. Like you are in a long-term artistic collaborative relationship um, mm. and you're doing it in a way that that is rooted in community and you're doing it for audiences that like the big theatres are desperately trying to get through their doors and failing mostly. Um, mm. And and that really, that changed the way I think about my work a lot and it stopped me wanting to be validated quite so much by, you know, the big beasts of theatre. And I think that is a really significant thing when I think about the artists um, who are engaging with our School of High Tide at the moment in terms of the live sessions and also those people we hope will have the opportunity to listen to this series, which is there is a massive thing in the sector about how we assess success and that we do have mechanisms that are consistently encouraging artists to view their work through the lens of what is traditional or structures that that, that are currently there. What I find extraordinary about that, and one of our undertakings at High Tide, certainly moving forwards, is you know, not trying to homogenize the diverse voices that come to us, mm. because actually so much of that is, okay, you're interested in this story. It's, you know, there's something you mentioned earlier as well about listening. And of course, for a writer, um, perhaps writing that first play or arriving with that thing that they want to tell, that actually is often born out of a very long period of listening to themselves and listening to their community and channeling yeah. a frustration mm. Um, so there has been really intense listening that, that brings them to that point. And I think really important for, for artists to be comfortable in that space, especially for emerging writers to know that they have perhaps, especially those engaging, they've listened listened for a very long time. Um, but actually that at the point of, of releasing that out there, a lot of our structures turn into the kind of trad, well, you know, what is the three act structure of this? And Mm. can you do a draft by then? And this is when we go into rehearsals and do those processes actually generate the really rich and bold work that truly honors the diversity of perspective that our exciting talent is bringing? And I increasingly think not. Um, and this is where the opportunity that, of like youth and community exists, exactly. right? Because we don't like, you know, we make our plays over three or four years because we know that they're not going to produce like the perfect, I mean, whatever perfect is, but we're not going to produce something that we think feels ready in the 12 week term we have, do you know what I mean? Or the, t- the 24 week term. So we just start making it again once we've made it once. And and you can define your structures much more and you can kind of work outside, as you say, those kind of trad like structures that exist in a capitalised industry, right? And I wonder how much more significant those processes would be given if people were actively pointing out that some of that long-term working, that sustained development of idea and concept and getting to know an ensemble over many years is actually just very akin to how the Russian theatres work. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Um, but we, we seem to have lost that connection there. I because, it's, because it's expensive, mm. right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Everyone would love that, but it's expensive. (laughs) Yeah, but it's interesting that people then then ignore or deny the kind of artistic validity of of a sector where some of that work is able to happen, Mm. um, you know, because ultimately you're not necessarily paying the actors. (laughs) Um, So there's, you know, there's something interesting in that. I, I wondered within all of this and thinking about, again, about some of the people listening, of course, this this area and way of working won't be for everyone um which is perfectly valid of course and and people make in a range of different ways 
I'd be interested to hear from you what what you feel might be some of the kind of core values, if that's not too um, loaded a term, or core um, areas of interest or questions that somebody who wants to move into this realm of, of making as a writer might need to kind of be holding within themselves as their compass through through this? That's a big question. I think you're right. Like, just to address your point, I think you're right that it might not be everyone's routine, but I also think that some form of um, collaborative space for people to develop work, like if every play was... Um, if every playwright writing had the opportunity to take some of their work into community or youth or whatever spaces to to re-engage with um, maybe members of their own community or different communities or, or whatever. Like, I wonder if that was built into processes in a much more kind of um, regular basis, that that might be a really amazing shift in our work. Mm. Um, that not, not as a kind of forced thing, but like that, Imagine every writer gets two weeks of R&D with a group of people that they could define, even if it was like mm. their own family. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And they were paid to, <laughs> yeah. to come and talk about that a bit more or like, I don't know. Um, in terms of in terms of writers getting involved, I, I don't know what the values might be, but like, like, you know, I'm also really aware of the writers that you are working with in the School of High Tide and, and you know, my suspicion is that they you know will have come to this process because they feel that they have big stories to tell and that they you know they do have real roots in in who they are and and where they've kind of where they've kind of emerged from in their lives and like I think I think you know like the idea of perhaps something that that maybe lessens a load is is that, that often it's a real solo pressure on a playwright like often mm. playwrights I think feel really like uh under a lot of pressure to go and sit in their room and to type furiously on their keyboard or, or stare blankly at their their screen until something comes out but that perhaps I don't know for lots of people finding space to discuss their work or to test little bits out or to develop feels like a real liberating thing that it doesn't have to be all out of you that it can be like crafted from the relationships or, or conversations that you have with with a whole range of different people um I don't know if that's useful I think so and I think what's what's interesting within that and I was reflecting on this when you were talking to Naomi earlier and another of our kind of episodes in the series is with uh wonderful Debbie Hannon looking at, mm. at research which is you know, there is this this kind of pervasive myth that, that you do lock yourself up and then yeah. something kind of flows from God through you and ends up on the screen or on the page somehow. Um, I just don't think that that truly reflects the ways in which any writer that I know is actually making work because we do workshop, we do play, we, yeah. we do research, we do ask questions. Virtually every new writing process I've been in has been, you know, motored at least by at least a moment where it's about mucking about and improving and asking questions with a group of wonderful actors, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, other of the work I've done, community consultation, you know, we've especially been, when we've commissioned work that's really hitting on kind of, 
you know, um, challenging social themes, wanting to explore with audiences why we might be telling this story and stuff like that. So I feel like some of those processes exist, but aren't, again, aren't spoken about. Yeah, I think that's right. They're not they're not clear, into. right? And also that you can't ask for it, perhaps. Do you know what I mean? That it's kind of like mm. someone decides, I mean, I'm sure not with you, but like that someone decides that now's the time to workshop your play. You know, yeah. that you have to have brought a certain amount of whatever to, to that that thing. Um yeah. Yeah. And I think a thing within that as well, something I would really want to encourage any writer who's listening to this to think about is this thing about legitimacy Mm -hmm. which is it's very difficult as the solo artist to invite other voices into your process that may come from um sometimes insecurity which it does it may come from because you're so holding on to that thing that it's difficult to to let go of it and share it with other people i would say it's important to find that muscle because you're going to have to let go of it at some point otherwise they ain't ever going to get on um but and and perhaps this is where i think that you like the, the the whole youth and community sector of like can be really useful because one like when you work with young people and you take work to them i find them both to be incredibly generous um and also really honest <laughs> do you know mm. what i mean oh um, god yeah and and so maybe it's harder to like maybe the workshopping process with a group of actors and a literary manager and uh, whatever else and an artistic director and another director whatever that's there's a lot of pressure in that room even if like even if you don't even if everyone's incredibly nice and really constructive and whatever else. But actually sometimes like this other space where you can bring, you can bring some lines or you can bring a character and you go, what do you think of that? And what does that mean mm. to you? And who do you know is a bit like that? Um, that, that? It just feels like there's a wider, I mean, the, and the beautiful thing about that in a wider theatre sense is that I think that if I was involved in the R, if I, in helping someone R&D their work, I'm more likely to come and see it when it's on. Exactly. And there's something exactly. about like, I hate these words, but audience development in that, right? There's something <laughs> about kind of, you know, like encouraging the people, like investing people in a process so that they might then feel some ownership of the end result as well. Yeah, and you can do that as a writer informally, or you can do it, you can advocate and ask your commissioning theatre or whatever it is to, to set that up for you. Yeah, and and also if you are that that independent practitioner out there without that commissioning structure around you, finding the confidence to, which you know, I'm afraid we can't give that confidence to people solely through a motivational podcast. (laughs) But all I would ever say, and as I consistently say to writers, you know, if it's exciting to you, if it matters to you, it will matter to other people, Um, and there will be people out there who will want to spend time with you thinking through the things that affect you that also affect them um, and, and, and finding think, those communities is you know yeah and often writers might think that in order to start a process collaboratively they have to work with theatre makers but as with directors as well like I, like I'll, I'll often say go and find the local community group to you do you know what I mean or go and like visit a load of other you know, other groups who aren't making theatre and speak to them because because they might hold more answers than you think they do. Yeah. And, you know, and in those answers, you may also find some absolutely killer lines that you can chuck straight into yeah. the text. Yeah, exactly. On that note, brilliant. <laughs> exactly. But that's the thing. They are. They are. And I suppose what sits at the heart of this is, is, is people and that connection and actually build it into the process if you can because, you know you're going to have to open your doors to them at the end. Mm. Shuba, you know, can I say that, one that, more thing as well, like, mm. which is 
like you talked earlier about this idea of sitting in a room and then kind of some lightning flash happens and a play emerges mm. out of you. And I think that's one of the things that as an organisation working with writers, and by writers I mean like people who call themselves playwrights and people in the room who want to write and, um, you know, it's a it's it's a spectrum, isn't it, rather than a binary thing that. Mm. And um, one of the things that we work really hard on is trying to understand the process of making theatre as a process, as a craft, rather than as as an act of God. Um, because as soon as it becomes an act of magic or an act of God, I think it, it becomes very exclusive. And I think a lot of power that's held in theatre right now is held by, is held because we believe that only some people are, have a kind of right to make theatre and know how to do it. Um, and so a lot of our yeah. work and, and the thing that I, I'm going to bring to the School of High Tide, I think is about, is about answering the question, how do you make a play? As a, as a solo artist, as a writer, or as a group of people working collaboratively. And until we feel really confident, like often I train people who call themselves theatre makers and I say, hands up, who knows how to make a play? Mm. And a lot of, like, it's, you know, <laughs> everyone's mm -hmm. very, very shy of that question. But it's weird, isn't it? Because if, if we were all like tractor makers and I said, hands up, who knows how to make a tractor? Everyone would know how to make a tractor. Yeah. And and I think there's something about having confidence that it is a craft and that there is process rather than you have to sit there and be like something erupt out of you um, because yeah. you're skilled or talented, I think is really important too. Hey, well, it is. And it is, you know, and I would always say there's, there's classism inherent in that yeah. because this thing about being touched by God while you're mm. sort of idly sat around at home waiting for inspiration well yeah. you know there are very few people who can afford that reality and we have to be yeah. aware of that but there is something you know and I, th I think you're exactly right to speak to this um there is some willful kind of smoke and mirrors around those creative processes and the idea that it is process the idea that there are a set of tools you can use to crack an idea open um, that I think do That's democratizing, restrict. right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, do you exactly. think that? Yeah, like, like if you know the tools and you, you know, and you develop your your own tools, then that's democratizing, right? Exactly, exactly. On that subject, I'm going to bring in Democrat in Chief, Mr. Chris Sonnex. Have you ever been called Democrat in Chief? <laughs> Never. Never at all. I, I was just thinking about that, actually, as an interesting thing about the idea that there's a hierarchy and, and, and this gift of gift of God as, a, as an artist and we know how to do certain things. And, and I think as thinking about that in relation to the divisionary sort of uh, tactics that happen when it comes down to youth and mm. um, community theatre and, and, and lettering it. And I, mm. I, I wonder whether it's, it's sort of the work that you do and, and, and many others do that I thank you for every day um, that that work is, is, is lessered by some people because it, it devalues the idea that there's, um, that, yeah. that these people have this meritocracy that they, mm. <laughs> like they've, they've got there because they're better than everybody. But, but actually if, you know, 26 young people make a, a far better play, uh, from a, from a deprived area in London, um, then, then this, this person that really believes in this idea of meritocracy, um, which doesn't exist, do you know? <laughs> and it's also about what makes a good play, right? Like, yeah. you know, like, I, I, we made this play called Brainstorm ages ago and it did really well. And I don't think it's because anyone on that stage was a particularly 
I mean, some of them were good actors, do you know what I mean? But not all of them were good actors and they haven't all gone on to be good actors. Like, they've not all gone on. But it's the fact they stood up and told a story <laughs> that that meant something, you know? It wasn't about technique. And I think one of the beautiful the beautiful things about theatre is that it doesn't always need to be great technique. It can actually just be standing in front of stunt in front of a crowd and saying something that costs you something you know like that that, that connects in some way that, that's meaningful and and so I think that flips that idea of also like perfect dialogue or perfect play structure or anything like that on its head as well yeah I do I always feel like it's about what that feeling is I'd you know I've sat through many a play um that from from big theaters that have, has left me feeling absolutely nothing and i just can't get on board with that and 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 but i bet know, they were technically great yeah i'm completely 100% you go well this is this is brilliant but actually um it's not making me feel anything mm. and i don't mm. think i've ever sat through no matter how how well structured or how brilliant it's been uh, a young person's piece of work and not felt something at some point and um, speaking of um, feeling something, I did. I wanted to ask you a question, which I'm going to ask all, all the guests, which is about albums. I know it's quite a, a, a difficult um, thing to pin down. I was just thinking about it there, where I don't think I could could answer this question without <laughs> listing about. You can't four, answer your own question. Yeah, yeah. four hundred albums. <laughs> but but, mm. um, but one of the reasons that I wanted to bring it up to you, there's many reasons why I asked this question. I find it, it, it uh, infinitely interesting. Um, but I, I used to do this when I did loads of community work in Tottenham with loads of different groups of people for the Royal Court. Mm. One of the things that I used to really was was the thing that really was easy to engage with was music. Mm. Theatre seemed to be quite a difficult thing to to engage with, mm. um, and I, and I figured it's because music's quite accessible. Um, it, mm. it you know it's it's sort of everywhere and it's easy to get to, whereas theatre isn't isn't necessarily the thing. And I wanted to know what, how music affects you, um, which is why I wanted to know about your sort of most influential album. But one of the other reasons that I want to know is because you spend so much time doing such brilliant work with, um, with the young people in Islam. Um, but you never, we never hear that much about you as an artist. And I always want to sort of interrogate that a little bit further. So here's my uh, opportunity to do that. My favourite album is an album called Boxer by a band called The National. Um, and... Uh, it's like super melancholy, um, like post-rock uh, mm. album. It's really, it's kind of low, like, um, but it's it's followed me for a lot of my life and through a lot of festivals and uh, uh, and gigs. Um, and it's it's uh, it's not something I'd ever play in our room, but maybe I should one day and see how they go. I think with you it. should. I think there's something. <laughs> I listen, I think there's something about the, the beauty of music being able to be sort of totally yeah, traded right. and and yeah. and given to people and and it's okay whether you whether you don't like a piece of music in the way that oh, it's yeah, okay absolutely. that you don't like a a play or 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 this do you know what's sad or, sometimes or sad and happy at the same time is that sometimes we'll do some work with them where they bring in like their parents like the the, the, the kind of inheritance songs from their parents <laughs> and they're all songs from like my childhood and i'm really unhappy about it <laughs> oh shit <laughs> I do, I do a similar thing to, to to you when it comes to music in the rehearsal room, um, and I've been working with young people um, a lot recently as well. And um, they they keep coming in with like songs that are like, "Oh, this is a real old school track," and I'm like, "Oh yeah, cool." I was 26 in the club when yeah, that came yeah. out. That was, that's <laughs> so um, upsetting. Yeah, um, 
damn you. But when they all go, when they all go, yeah, that's really like, that's really 90s. I was like, oh, I was there. <laughs> yeah, I existed in that time. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. What was that album again? So people can check it out. It's called Boxer and it's by The National. By The National. I wanted to know also about a piece of advice that you would give yourself um, when you were when you were starting out um, that might be helpful for some of the writers listening in today or any artists in general that are listening in. What would I give myself? It's a bold, big question, isn't it? No, it's a good one. <laughs> like, do you know what? Actually, um, as an artist, I have really wobbly foundations <laughs> um, <laughs> in that I... I'm not saying take a traditional route at all, but I think I tried to lead before I was ready to. I think if I'm super honest about it, like really hungry to prove myself, do you know what I mean? Mm. And like to be good and to be respected and like all that stuff. Like, I guess my advice is twofold actually. One is don't worry about that. Um, And two is to take the time to learn. And because you've got a long journey, you know, like I work with a lot, I've spoken in the last year, particularly during the pandemic, I think a really difficult age to be in the pandemic is 27. Um, because there's that kind of, I think at 27, 28, and of course this will be different for different people, different, you know, coming in at different stages. But like, I think you're often like, what am I doing with my life? And you know, like what's the next step and stuff like that. And like, but you've got so much time, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like to learn and and work with other people and to to build your foundations something we say in our work is that like often when we when people make plays they do a very small amount of research and try and balance their play on top of it right and it's much more likely to topple over I think that if you've got but if you have a really broad 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 base of research in the making of a play you can always go back to it and dig something else out and continue to build your play up high um and I think the same is is in your career like try lots of stuff out learn lots um spread yourself wide, <laughs> you know, and like, and develop your, your, your craft, um, before you try and make your signature show. Love it. That's great. I wanted to end on a, on a bit of hope, um, uh, same as a joy. I wanted to know what your hopes for, um, for theatre are in the next coming years. Um, <laughs> where do we start? Um, I'll give you a specific one and then a general one. Um, okay. We have worked over the last year with about 300 youth theatres in the UK. Um, And um, I knew this, I think, deep down, but I've seen it now and I've seen it on Zooms. Um, And I think theatre, youth theatre, like a lot of theatre, but youth theatre, and there's, you know, there's even more of a reason why this is dangerous and wrong, has a... um, a huge diversity problem, um, a huge representation and equity problem in its leadership. There are not enough uh, black and Asian leaders of youth theatres, um, not enough youth theatres from Latin American heritage, not enough, you know, not enough leaders who uh, truly represent their community. Um, and I think if if the youth theatre sector is going to do what I really want the youth theatre sector to do, which is become a maybe this is the second thing, right? A space of like huge civic responsibility, um, uh, a space where young people can really be heard because we've got the infrastructure, right? Like just a lot of the time we're not doing it, that work. Like we're making plays about adults where young people dress up as adults. But if we're really going to make it a space where art can function as a space for civic societal transformation, then we need... um, 
we need a more representative leadership of it. Um, so those, are, so I think those two things are linked actually. Um, but that's like I'd like to see youth theatre leading the conversation and leading the way society listens to young people. Um, and in order to do that, I think we need a much more representative leadership of it. I share that hope. Could you end, Ned, on giving us? <laughs> yes, yes, I can. Uh, company, <laughs> yeah, can you end? Um, yeah, can, uh, company freeze logo. Uh, our, our, our rules uh, catchphrase the rules yeah yeah I can um, do you know what these rules are the rules that I I kind of said off the top of my head when I walked into the room when I first started working with what wasn't even then Company 3 but became Company 3 later and they've stuck with us ever since so I think they came from a good place of instinct um, and I said we're not going to have any rules because young people have too many rules in their lives and they do um, but we're going to have three rules only and they're all going to be positive and they are be kind, be brave and be yourself. And I've never ever had a situation in our work where I've had to make up a new rule. Do you know what I mean? We've always mm -hmm. been able to refer anything that's ever happened in our work to one of those three things. That's beautiful. Thank you, Ned. Thank you. This podcast was produced by High Tide and supported by Nick Hernbooks and Lansons. It was made possible with support from the Culture Recovery Fund. It was presented and produced by myself, Naomi Shonier-Thomas, and co-presented by Chris Sonics and Shubhadas. Chris Sonics also worked as a co-creator on the podcast. It was recorded by Callum Swingler and edited by Liam Cameron and featured original artwork by Dragonfly Design. Links to references and resources discussed in this episode can also be found at www.hightide.org.uk where you can also subscribe to High Tide's newsletter and donate to the theatre company. If you'd like to follow High Tide on Twitter, their handle is at underscore High Tide underscore. And don't forget, if you'd like to join in with the discussion in today's episode, you can do so on social media using the hashtag School of High Tide. <laughs>